Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Carnival Row is a one-hour fantasy drama series starring Orlando Bloom and Carla Delevingne. The series is set in a Victorian fantasy world filled with mythological creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the Empire of Man. They struggle to coexist with humans, forbidden to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando plays Rykoff Illustrate, a police inspector, investigating a series of gruesome murders threatening the uneasy peace of the row. Cara Delevingne plays Vignette Stonemoss, a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Berg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. But even in darkness, hope lives as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair, despite an increasingly intolerant society. Come together on August 30th to watch Carnival Row, only on Amazon Prime Video, this Labor Day weekend. For nearly 30 years, Todd Garner has overseen blockbuster films like Con Air, Anger Management, Triple X, 13 Going on 30, and Black Hawk Down. Why are they letting you make these movies? Join Todd as he shares tips and stories from the front lines of producing in Hollywood. I'm Adam Sandler. I'm Rebel Wilson. This is Jeff Probst. I'm Kaylee Cuoco. I'm Eli Roth. This is Marla Wayans. Hey, it's Ed Helms. This is Shay Mitchell. Everybody, this is Kevin James, and this is The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Todd Garner. Todd Garner. Todd Garner. What a combination. If you guys remember my interview with Nina Jacobson, I hinted at a story about how early on in my career I was presented with the opportunity of maybe going to go with Jeffrey to DreamWorks. That wasn't to be because I had a contract and I couldn't get out of the contract. And I had gone to my boss and said, Hey, you know, what do you think about me in my naivete? joining DreamWorks. And he was like, you have a contract with the Walt Disney Company. There's no chance you're going to DreamWorks. And also, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey are not in the best of terms right now. That would be the last place we would let you go. I had this new boss coming in that I didn't know anything about. And I knew that he had greenlit Home Alone. I knew that he had started Morgan Creek. I knew that he was a producer, but I didn't know him personally. And I knew Jeffrey and I knew I got along with Jeffrey and I knew that I loved working for Jeffrey. And so I went to him and I said, listen, I have this opportunity and I'm being held back by my contract. And he very simply said to me, listen, I have looked at your projects. I have looked at your slate. Give me six months. And if you don't like working here after six months, I will figure out a way to let you go to DreamWorks. That six months turned into over a decade. So anybody who knows me or anybody who's listening to this podcast knows that there is really one person who I consider my biggest mentor, and that's Joe Roth. He not only was somebody that I admired and somebody that I watched the decisions that he made in business, but he was also somebody that took me under his wing and really taught me how to deal with talent, how to try to have a more even keel, because I didn't always, uh, (laughs) all the time, have an even keel. But Joe is a guy who is not only brilliant in terms of of just his storytelling and his ability to pick talented people to surround himself with, but he's a savant with numbers. He's able to calculate things in his head that people take years now in these green light meetings with huge committees to figure out the same result that he was getting back when he was doing it by himself from his gut and from his own internal way that he would run the numbers and decide how much a movie should cost and what his risk was. And I worked for him for over a decade, and it was probably the best time in my career. It was uh, more than just a company. It was a family. I really have wanted to get him on this podcast since I started. I'm so lucky to have him on today. I hope you enjoy the stories, but it's mostly just for me going back and reliving my history in my early days of being under the tutelage of somebody as uh, amazingly smart as Joe Roth. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Joe Roth. Hi, Joe. Todd. Hello. How, how are you? I haven't seen you in a white I know. beard. It's, I know, my beard. The last time I saw you, you were 14, you didn't shave yet. <laughs> so I got to say, I've probably done 70 episodes of this now. I've not been more excited than I was this morning coming to do this podcast with you. Hey, what a group you must have. I, well, no. <laughs> we talk about you a lot because I, I consider you my mentor and probably taught me most of what I know in the movie business. <laughs> well, that tells you why we're doing this. <laughs> well, I'm doing a podcast now. So, Joe, I feel like in the movie business now, and I've talked about this a lot, I feel like the green light process has become so corporatized over the years. And I talked to like Mike Medavoy and some guys like that about, I don't know that it's any different 
to have a huge corporation of people in it remember sitting around a table greenlighting movies or when you were just greenlighting movies from your gut. And I feel like it's just going to keep going down that road. Although I feel like maybe Netflix is probably the closer to back in the day when you were just deciding what, what movies to make. And you're making all these huge movies. You're making Maleficent. You're making Dr. Doolittle and The Great and Powerful Oz and Snow White and Alice in Wonderland and the Triple X franchise. So you've obviously pivoted. You've obviously seen that that's the kind of the way the corporate movies are going. Do you miss it? Do you share that idea that like just guys going from their gut is probably have the same hit ratio as these huge corporations making these decisions? I would say guys going from their gut have about a five to one hit ratio than people 47 people making a decision right based on all kinds of things that uh, make sense on a one-on-one basis and right. make no sense on a 47 people judging basis i mean when i came in it was a very simple business and uh somebody made a decision and we all went with our gut and did the best we could and uh, we were the top of the food chain at the studios mm-hmm. and now we're a rounding error at the studios <laughs> right. we're not even second or third or right. fourth or fifth right and now these companies are you know run by trillion dollar conglomerates who have very specific needs and they are frightened of what we used to call the middle is now anything that's not a uh, you know a a movie based on lovable old IP is streaming. Right. <laughs> There's right. like no in between. Right. So when you started out, you were born in New York. You went to Boston University. Yeah. And then your first company that you started was Morgan Creek. Right. So w- walk me through the, the idea of forming Morgan Creek and kind of where the movie business was and kind of what your North Star was when you started that company. Well, I started, I had done a, uh, two uh, independent movies, Tunnel Vision and Bachelor Party. They were both successful. And uh, I ran, I said, you know, I'd like to kind of try to do this on my own. And I ran into a bunch of investors. And then I thought, well, you know what? Maybe the problem is, is that I'm producing and directing. And so maybe I'll hop on with very successful producers. So I went over to Warner Brothers and the hottest producers in town then were uh, Goober and Peters mm-hmm. and Mark Canton was running the studio and they gave me a project called uh, Men on Base with uh, Jim Belushi. And uh, because I have a natural distrust for all this, uh, I signed on for 30 <laughs> days. So at the end of 30 days, we turned in the script. Now, I've already had it uh, experience of, you know, you get a script, you read it on the weekend, you tell people what you want. So the first weekend, it went in and crickets and the second weekend it went in crickets so finally i knew the guys running the joint bob daly and terry semmel and i called up bob daly and i said i don't understand this you got the hottest producers in the, in the business your head of production this is his very favorite movie and he said what is it and i tell him what it is and bob says without skipping a beat oh we'd never make a baseball movie so at that moment I got in my car in Burbank and called up one of my investors out of rage and said, you put up $20 million, I can guarantee you I know how to make you uh, money. Wow. That was Morgan Creek. Wow. And then from there, you became chairman of 20th Century Fox, where you famously greenlit Home Alone. and. What was the jump from Morgan to – and by the way, you do this, Joe. You, you're you an independent producer. You go take the biggest job there is. Then you get you get restless. Then you go become an independent producer with Caravan. And then you become chairman of Walt Disney Studios. Then you decide, I'm going to start my own studio, start Revolution. So you definitely have this pendulum that keeps going back and forth. Well, it's a cir- I, I think of it as a circle. Okay. And then I start knowing nothing in that particular place I'm at. And then when I get around to the circle, I go, oh, I did this already. That's when I know it's time to leave. Right. So I don't like to repeat uh, the specifics. What drove you from Morgan Creek to uh, where you had so many huge hits, you know, from Young Guns to to, uh, Major League? What drove you to 20th Century Fox from that that gig? Well, um, Young Guns had, uh, Morgan Creek had a short lifespan. It was based on studio ignorance, which is if you could make a movie for $10 million and sell the international for $5 million, which you could, the studios at that point didn't understand home video. Right. And so they would just simply take the theatrical intelligence rights, and you could sell home video to somebody else. I see. So you're constantly in profit as long as you made a movie for under $10 million. So we did 11 movies in 18 months, and uh, 10 of them made money. The third, the 11th, was because my partner did it and went away over a budget. (laughs) And um, 
then uh, you know, I'd never had a weekly job. And right. uh, uh, Murdoch and Diller called me in, and I had like a seven-minute interview. They were starting the, the network, and so they needed somebody to run the studio. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. Right. And it was about a seven- or eight-minute interview. Wow. And then I shook hands and left. And Barry called the next morning and said, uh, we want you to run the studio. Wow. And I remember very well my first line to him was, you're making a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I've never had a weekly paycheck, let alone a staff. Right. right? So uh, that's so uh, curiosity always kind of drives me. Uh-huh. And so I went in and realized that it was very much like being a producer. You had the, the most important thing was making the calls, you know, of how, what you wanted to develop and how you wanted to put it together, and at what price point, and then yeah. go ahead and do it. And that's really where you get green light, right? So yes. walk me through. There was like, no green light process. Right, exactly. And so like Home Alone is a perfect example, which yeah. I know the story very well, but I want you to tell it. Mm-hmm. So you know, you just, you just greenlit movies that you thought would be profitable. You knew, and you're incredible with numbers in terms of just in your head. I've seen you do it a thousand times where you just go through it in your head and you go, oh, if you make it for this price, I think we can get out pretty pretty okay. And then, obviously, you've be gone hugely beyond that more, way more times than you've not. So when you get green light at 20th Century Fox, mm-hmm. what did it mean and how did you make those decisions? Uh, from the gut. Right. So uh, Home Alone is a funny one because uh, we were making uh, Only the Lonely with uh, John Candy and Chris Columbus. But it had to wait because Warner's was making Home Alone. So we had to wait for it. And the budget was uh, $14 million and they wouldn't make it because it was fourteen seven. <laughs> so uh, I was having lunch with Jack Rapke and he told me that uh, they were having a problem. And... Uh, I said, what's the, what's the project? And he explained it to me. And I said, bring it over. Well, I'll do it first. We don't have a Thanksgiving movie. And then after that, we'll follow it with uh, Only the Lonely. Right. I went basically on title and, uh, and, and what it was. And lo and behold, it was much bigger. But what, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an understatement. What was it about that project? So Jack Rapke pitches it as there's this kid and yeah, his parents leave and yeah. these guys try to bust in. I mean, yeah. But what, what did you see in it? Okay. Well, I, I have been a believer my whole life that the movie, the choice of going to a movie is binary, mm-hmm. right? You either want to go, you don't want to go. Nobody can convince you to go. Nobody can convince you, you can't, that you shouldn't go. So the first piece of it is the title. And so Home Alone is an unbelievably high-concept title. Right. And then I thought, well, it's a comedy, which is good, too. And it's inexpensive. Uh, and uh, the guys who are doing it, John Hughes, certainly was a name brand. Right. And um, and I like the, the wish fulfillment of a little boy who can hold off cops by being clever. Right. And that was it. Wow. But I've seen you do it so many times, too, specifically about the title, too. Because, like, when um, Hensley and... and um, and Jerry and Bay mm-hmm. pitched you Armageddon. Mm-hmm. It wasn't called Armageddon. No, I don't know and what you, it was called. I said, you mean Armageddon? Yeah, and that was it. And they all sort of stared at me. Yeah. And then uh, my boss at the time said, isn't that a negative title? And I said, no, no, no you, you don't understand. The idea about titles is you're in a plane 30,000 miles, 30,000 feet in the air, right. and you see a billboard, right? And you look at that billboard, and for some reason... That registers. So by the time the movie comes out, if you see a Stolish Naya ad, right. you're going to swear it's Armageddon. Right. So it was a, just an interesting word. You always say that. I, I've told people a million times that, you, that what you said is if it can be one word yep. in a, a big horizontal billboard, like Ransom, yes. Armageddon, yes. and Home Alone. Pearl Harbor, like that's the other thing. When we, when Bay came in and he didn't have an, another movie, and we sat around that huge table with yep. everybody pitching him a thousand movies, which he passed on all of them. Mm-hmm. And then at the right as Bay got up, I said, "What about Pearl Harbor?" Right. And you said, "That's the movie you're doing." Just to be able to see that, and right. that just never happens anymore. Well, no, it can't because again, you're being run by AT and T and and right. and the likes and. By the way, we're just starting to see these guys. Yeah. I, I believe within five years, there'll be four buyers. Right. And uh, 
someone's going to come down, whether it's Google or Apple or one of these places, and going to sweep up all the stuff that's still left on, on the ground, whether it's Sony or Paramount or Lionsgate. And, you know, you'll have four enormous buyers that have different needs, most of them which will be streaming. Right. So the movie theaters, I think, will by and large be left for P.T. Barnum. Right. You know, they'll be left for what Marvel does. Right. You know, gigantic, easy concepts based on pre-loved IP. Well, which you obviously saw way, way early, because you were a very early adopter with House of Wonderland with yes. with Disney. And then you, because I, <laughs> I remember when I you guys started shooting it, I instantly, because I wasn't working for you, then I instantly, oh, shit. Joe's on. <laughs> I've got to get into this. You had already well, had five that you were working on. Well, the thing about it, Dalmatians was the start of it. Yeah, no, I remember. And uh, the idea was here, this wonderful company had all these fantastic uh, animated movies. And I thought with a clever filmmaker and with the tools of today, uh, there are some that will be able to be converted uh, right. successfully. So Dalmatians was the first one. And they're all, most of them are public domain. Most right. of them are stories from way back when. Well, that's like Mulan was a perfect example. The, the, the woman wrote it off the poem and then sold it back to Disney as a remake of their animated movie. Snow White and the Huntsman was a seven-page short story by right. the Grimm Brothers. Right. You know what I mean? It's, yep. uh, so there's ways to run a company where you don't have to have a ton of money for development. You just have to be resourceful enough to keep looking for things that are in the public domain that you feel can be converted to today's world. And uh, Alice is a good example because it's a much-loved story. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last time it was done, was animated. Uh, And it was known all over the world in every language. And, uh, you know... Uh, female empowerment stories have a habit of working. Little boy empowerment stories have a habit of working. I think you go to the movies mainly to have that feeling, whether it's a comedic one or escaping a horror thing or having an adventure. Is uh, you know, lights are down. How many times in the world right now can you get into a dark room and have a, a you know a wanderlust adventure where you're in power? Right. Well, going back to 101 Dalmatians, that catches up to where you and I meet, Mm -hmm. which was you were my boss at Disney, and I didn't know really anything about you other than you were the chairman of of Fox, and then you had Caravan with us, Mm -hmm. where I think you and I got into it a couple times, like with The Rock, you tried. You tried to buy it, and and I was like, "Who who are these producers that are coming and trying to get everything?" And then you became my boss, and so yes, and I turned the rock over back to you. Yes, we gave it, it to Jerry, and it was Michael's best movie. I yeah. think, yeah, he did an unbelievable job. So, and and the thing about when you came in, which is so fascinating to me, was uh, and I've told the story a million times where I was working uh, for Jeffrey, and Jeffrey left, and I was in this kind of fallow period where I had all my projects, and it's not what Disney was doing at the time. We weren't making those kind of movies, right? And you came in and you said, um, uh, we're going to go to Palm Springs and everybody needs to pitch their movies right. in 15 seconds. Yep. And, and then, because before you got there, we were going down this path because we just bought Miramax. Mm-hmm. We were going down this path of like, it's about a woman and mm-hmm. she's in the 15th century and she, mm-hmm. and, 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 and everybody was freaking out to have mm-hmm. to pitch something in 15 seconds. And you said smartly, look, I got to sell this in 15 seconds eventually. I have oh, to make th- a 15-second spot. My memory is it was 30 seconds, but okay, I'll buy 15 <laughs> it seconds. Was, no, I think you said 15 and you let us go to 30 because uh-huh. you had to make a 30-second spot or a 15-second yeah. spot. Yeah. And we kept going around and pitching it, and I would say, you know, it's about convicts on a plane or this, you know, and then right. and then when it, we came back around, you said, okay, here are the movies you're making. I had four right. and I had zero before. It just It's just a, a testament of being in the right room. And obviously, it worked for you until I stopped working for you, which is like 13 years later. Well, 80, 80% of the people, 80% of the moviegoers at the time we had that thing, uh, were their first response was, what was the television campaign? Right. And the television campaign is 30 seconds, right. a series of 30-second spots. So people, I believe, make choices intuitively about whether they want to go to the movie or not even before they actually know the whole story. There's just some kind of a vibe I agree. That, that, that comes over and says, oh, I'm coming, I'm coming to that. I mean, you can sit in a movie theater now and watch six trailers, 
and 99% of the time, you're going to pick the ones that work and the ones that don't right. work. Right. And that's, I think, also where the green light process started to get hinky. Because I remember even when you were green lighting movies and then we would go to marketing, one of the, one of the things that is most seared into my memory was We Made High Fidelity. Right. Obviously, your, your relationship with Johnny Cusack mm-hmm. and Scott Rosenberg having written Con Air for us and et cetera, et cetera. And, and I remember Orin Aviv showed us the first trailer and he said, and it had nothing to do with the, the idea of the movie. And right. he, I said, Oren, the, the, the idea of the book and the idea of the movie is this guy goes and visits his old mm-hmm. relationships. He goes, I don't like that idea. <laughs> I said, but Joe, we, we've been working on this thing for four years. And I said, nope, I don't. And so I think that the first thing, if I remember, where people try to hedge their bets in yeah. terms of the green light process was inviting marketing in. Because marketing was always say, I can't f-ing sell this. Yes. No, no, you can't start with marketing. Right. You have to end with marketing. In other words, you have to believe that you have a notion that well executed, they can market. Right? right. So you have to be your own marketing person. You have to think, okay, so in two sec, two minutes, what can I say about what will I be able to say about this movie? Right. right? And if you can, then you're going to have to stay on marketing until they get to that place. Right. And uh, no, no, they, they, they are way too, uh, listen, they used to have um, uh, Columbia in the old Frank Price days used to uh, market test the concepts. Right. Right. And one of the concepts that came in at uh, Columbia was uh, a boy's life. And it was a story about a boy and an alien and this and that. And, and what came back from them was, uh, it's too kiddie, never work. <laughs> Universal picked it up, and it was ET. Right, you know, so you can't you can't use a formula in order to say this is going to work. Right, and now you can't even use a, a a sequel formula because the audience who are getting more and more choices, they have to believe that there's a continuation of that story. And my my uh, hard and fast rule is. When you start the project, if you can't see a continuation of that story, don't do it. Right. Because it's just about greed. And, you know, you'll fumble around. Uh, when we tried to do a sequel to Home Alone, I think John wrote about 15 different drafts until we said, ah, forget it. Let's just put it in New York. Make the whole movie in New York. Because, you know, because <laughs> right. it's, it's hard to take a movie that yeah. someone wrote a beginning, a middle, and end and say, oh, it made a lot of money. Let's continue. Right. You know, so uh, I, you know, I loved Back to the Future, but it had an ending. Yeah. And the next two were, were very different movies. Same with uh, Matrix. Right. So when you came to Disney, we obviously were in a period where we were making just a lot of movies because the home video was so robust. And so the idea was if you wanted 20% growth, which was something that the board wanted for yeah. us, which was – and like you said, we were just a rounding error. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey – I mean, the, Jeffrey used to always say, look, we you are – 90% of the press and 10% of the profit. The parks are the exact flip. So yeah. don't f*** this up. Right. Don't f*** the brand up. Right, right. And so when you came, yeah. the first thing you did, I mean, you started making big movies. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons I did it is it, you'd have to be an idiot not to see that the international market was jumping and was just continued to jump. That we had 300 million people lived here, and there were another 7 billion people out in the world, and they were just behind us in terms of theater building. So we were the first company that did a billion dollars in uh, in uh, overseas, and we continued to do it and continued to grow. So when I came into Fox... 75% of the revenue came domestically, right? And by the time I left Disney, 75% of the revenue came internationally. Right. And so right now what you're seeing is you're seeing release dates ch- domestically chosen by when they can uh, come out internationally because that's that's where the – unless you make a baseball movie. Right. That's where the money is. Right. And so d- during your tenure at Disney, you – obviously we made a ton of movies with Jerry, a lot of movies with Adam Sandler, a lot of the big IP, IP movies. When you were doing that job – and you saw that the international and the and, and home video was was um, b- taking off. You made a lot of different choices, though, like Ransom, and, yeah. and we worked with um, the Cohen brothers on Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and we made musicals. Like, what was your North Star when you were uh, greenlighting these movies? The North Star always was if it's a great story 
and and you believed in the people, there had to be a price point that would be okay. Right. And how did you decide that? Because I find the P and L process now, and I and I, I again, I had a guy on here who has this uh, computer model, which does really, really in in depth um, analysis uh, for comps. And I find the comp process and the P and L process to be arbitrary. It's bogus. It's <laughs> perfect. I'm sorry, but it's bogus. So I, how did you do it? I did it in my head. <laughs> you know, I mean, in other words, you see a movie and uh, like it was the Sixth Sense, right? And the script was fabulous. And we had this kid from NYU to be the director. So I said, oh, okay, look, how how much can you screw it up? So it was going to be like a ten or twelve yeah. million dollar movie. And then Willis wanted to do it, so obviously it became a different size movie yeah but it never varied from what it was which is a spectacular notion well executed right so that it became a 30 million dollar movie but it didn't matter the the the, the actor right to, but it didn't change the scope of the movie and that was right when again this goes and there's so much to talk to talk to you about and i know that this is going all over the place but that goes back to your love for talent and your relationships with talent yes. because you got Bruce out of a movie yes. that you literally paid just in cash to get him out of this movie in in what in, i did uh, to get three Bruce, movies what i did with Bruce if i could do it today they'd put me in jail right because i can't imagine how many things i violated in doing it <laughs> i'm serious no i know i remember you bought him out of a movie I bought him, I but bought... then you said you have to do three movies for us at this price right. and the three movies were armageddon the sixth sense and disney's the and Kid. i had to pick the movies yeah that was it right i had to pick the movies wow so uh yeah so for his uh 15 million dollar buyout uh he i god only knows how much money he made on armageddon six cents and uh and and the kid yeah <laughs> a lot yeah but also for us it was it was amazing oh, and yeah, that's just was. a testament to your relationship so when you're when you're green lighting these movies and i've seen you do it and this is why i want to really deep dive into this i've seen you do it in your head mm -hmm. walk me through that process like what was how how do you do it how do you do it in your head where you know Okay, I think we're going to come out at this, and if you make it for this, we're going to be okay. How does that happen? Um, you know, it's the old Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours thing. Right. It's it just comes to you. It's a certain kind of genre which kind of indicates sort of the zone you're going to be in. If you have another director, it helps you better with the zone. If you know you need cast or don't need cast, that also helps. But you're driven by the the strength of either the underlying IP or the uh, brilliance of the idea. Right. I mean, we didn't have... I mean, we, the, we, we would always talk about how much IP we had and mm -hmm. then why... And, you know, and obviously Iger completely delivered on this thing, which we would always say to, to Michael Eisner... Star Wars is in the parks. Right. Indiana Jones is in the parks. Right. We obviously have these relationships. Yeah. Why aren't we making these kind of movies? Yes. And obviously Bob went and no. bought Marvel and bought and yeah. bought and bought Star and bought Lucasfilm. So we had all this IP, but the thing about it was we we were using that IP, you know, pirates obviously right. and 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 101 Dalmatians and Inspector Gadget and things like that. But there were so many different diverse movies that you were making, right? And that you were calculating all this all in your head. Well, they all had different price points, right? I mean, I wouldn't use uh, the same price point for Inspector Gadget as I would for Alice in Wonderland. Right. I look at the underlying rights. And Alice in Wonderland, I think, is one of the top five read books in the world, right? right? In in 125 languages or some some number like that. Inspector Gadget was an American television show, right? So you have to have completely different price points, right? Before we continue, I want to tell you about a fantastic show on Amazon Prime Video. Carnival Row is a one-hour fantasy drama series starring Orlando Bloom and Carla Delevingne. The series is set in a Victorian fantasy world filled with mythological creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the Empire of Man. They struggle to coexist with humans, forbidden to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando plays Rykoff Illustrate, a police inspector, investigating a series of gruesome murders threatening the uneasy peace of the row. Cara Delevingne plays Vignette Stonemoss, a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Berg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. But even in darkness, hope lives as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair despite an increasingly intolerant society. Come together on August 30th to watch Carnival Row, only on Amazon Prime Video, this Labor Day weekend. Hey, it's Todd. If you like what you hear or you have any questions about this podcast, please tweet at me at, at Todd underscore Garner on Twitter. Look forward to hearing from you. 
This is the Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. So you finish Disney, and you do, again, you come full circle around, where you go, I've done this before. What made you start a studio and not just become a producer again? Well, it was a hard choice, actually. I have uh, two lawyers, and one said, we could go raise money in a minute. And the other one said, why don't you just take a piece of the gross and be a producer? And uh, the idea that I would have to do what I'm actually doing now, right. which is to go pitch things to people who worked for people who worked for people who worked for me, right, uh, is sometimes a very um, a horrible uh, process. Sure. But having a studio, I, I wouldn't have to do that. Right. And um, as it turned out, it was the year 2000. Luck is so much uh, of this. We had a good run at Disney. Uh, All of the pay television deals were up. Right. All of them, HBO, Showtime, blah, blah, everybody was. So people were desperate to get a new avenue of product. So here comes a new avenue of product. And I think we raised $600 million in a couple of days, Mm -hmm. uh, partially because... People were desperate to have product in, a, in the pay television area. Right. There is, by the way, uh, a um, comparison to what's going on today. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were saying it. It feels very similar in terms yeah. of the desperate need yes. for, for to put on their site, their channel, their yes. streamer, whatever it is. Right. Well, that's why Disney bought Fox. Right. And that's why Rupert, who's the smartest of them all, realized with a $70 billion company, he was too small to compete with Netflix. Right. See, Netflix has a, we dealt with Netflix, Netflix has a 15-year head start yep. in terms of uh, analytics. Yeah. Right? And it's going to take a while for people to catch up to that. Right. So it's not just about volume. It's about who they think is going to actually tune in, who's their audience, and how different is their audience. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying, just to, just to d- dive a little deeper into that, is we all sold movies to Netflix yes. for years and years and years, thinking, well, it's, it's just an a- another access to home video. Yeah, we built a monster. Exactly. And eventually, it just soaked up the entire... Because I always... When anybody says the home video market's dead, I said, no, it's not. It's just one company now. Yes. And, and all, what they were doing when they went digital was they were were watching everybody watching all these different movies they knew exactly who was watching they kept de- diving deeper and deeper and then they figured out if you liked Alice in Wonderland you'll love Maleficent yeah. if you like this you'll love this and be and they completely cut out all the marketing yes. spend yes. there's zero marketing spend yes. and they just got that large run until finally I think it was probably Iger who was one of the first people to go oh shit, yeah. I need to start taking these down because this is not sustainable for us yes no, and, it was Murdoch. Oh, okay. Because Murdoch sold the company. All right. Right? And he realized that uh, he couldn't compete. Right. So if he couldn't compete, what are people at Paramount and Sony and uh, right. uh, uh, I think and AT&T is trying to become a competitor uh, by their size? Right. And Comcast is trying to become a competitor by their size. But you got Netflix spending $15 billion a year when we at the studios would spend a billion dollars a year. It's a very hard, and they have 15 years of research ahead of them. You know, I think Disney is the only one that has a shot uh, right. because of how beloved their IP is, and they also now have Fox's IP. Right. But, uh, you know, Netflix is a brilliant, brilliant idea. Yeah. And so have you done anything for Netflix? Yeah. Well, we, we uh, Rob... Uh, figure out a window in 2006 and I went to Ted Sarandos and this is the revolution years yeah and he paid us 40 million dollars for 18 months of uh, so I was a schmuck just like all the other guys (laughs) just on a smaller sense right because it was all about greed right how do I uh, how do I do that nobody saw past you know the bottom line so I've known them from that and so right now I have a three picture firm commitment to make three pictures there and uh, have a television show there as well and what I came to is uh, it's so hard to make any money at the studios in the back end Mm -hmm. they have such a vice on on producers directors actors there's no first dollar gross you have to really get their money back and then some right sure and then if you do that which I would say maybe a half a dozen people a year can actually do sure. that, they don't get paid for five to seven years. Right. And Netflix, they buy you out, and you get paid uh, quarterly for two years. Right. That's it. You know, I, I've made three there as well. And so 
I'll get to the Netflix thing because I want to back up one second because that over the paid over five years thing is so apropos of revolution and kind of how hard it is to start. We were early adopters of how hard it is to start oh, yeah. a movie studio. Yeah. Obviously, the, the only people who have really done it are Summit and, um, you know, uh, Lionsgate combining, and they got lucky, not uh, lucky in quotes, having two monstrous yes. franchises. Yeah. Be, if, if, if you don't have that, no, you it's virtually impossible to start. Yeah. I, I was silly in the sense that if you don't have a library, yes. you're starting from scratch. Yeah. And these companies have thousands and thousands of titles to pick from. So you're starting from scratch, and then you realize you can't make it on singles and doubles. No. Right? And so how in the world do you find uh, tent poles without a library being an independent company? Yeah. You know? And um, and you're chasing your overhead. So yeah. you have to lay out all the overhead, all the cost of the all yep. the money, all the cost of marketing. All that's gone. And then you have hits or doubles or singles. Yep. And it takes 10 years for that revenue to come in. So right. the reason why you need the library is it's the only thing that's going to get you through to, to catch up to when you finally start having cash flow, which revolution, by the time it ended, it was sold, and now it's a, a going concern with this great library. And right. then they, they bought Morgan Creek, which right. is ironic. Right. Then now it's f- f- flushing. It's, you know, it's outputting yeah. cash because yeah. it's in, it's by the, all that revenue has come in. Yeah, and I that saw five it. years we were in business, we were just laying out money yeah. and it was trickling in. Look what we did for Adam Sandler. Look at this. Adam Sandler, I love, as you know. Yes, as do I. And he was making these movies at Universal. We all love Billy Madison. They were grossing $30 million. And then we brought him over to Disney. He did Waterboy. We did 150. And Anger Management, that did 150. And Click, that did 150. And so what was happening was the analytics at uh, 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 Netflix where we're bing, bing, yep. bing, yep. going through the roof. This is what people are watching. Yep. And so Adam was like the first deal they had there. Yeah. And everybody was scratching their head and going, what was that about? Well, it was about they saw on a piece of paper that those $150 million comedies, then we travel through home video, right. and et cetera, et cetera. People love them. Right. Let me go back to make people really insanely jealous of how it used to be. Because when, <laughs> when, we, when we bought Waterboy, yes. I drove to Adam Sandler's trailer. Yes. He pitched me the Waterboy. Right. I got in my car. I think he was in Hollywood shooting uh, The Wedding Singer. I got in my car. I drove back to Burbank. I s- caught you in a screening room, right. your screening room on the fifth, third floor of the Team Disney building. I walked in. I pitched you the movie, and you said to me, if you can make it for $25 million, it's greenlit. Right. And I walked out, and I went, holy shit. That just happened. I called Sandler. Like, we're making the movie. I thought I said $18 million. (laughs) (laughs) No, again, Adam Sandler, Waterboy, given where he was, seemed like a sure thing. This would be option it, one-step deal, Mm -hmm. read it, have 52 people tell you why it's a terrible idea. He's going to stutter. What is this character? What's going to... It would take five years to get that movie greenlit now. And maybe get it. Maybe. I remember when the movie was made and all the you know changes were happening within our company mm-hmm. and Dick Cook was there and David Vogel now was was now the head of uh, D- uh, Walt Disney and Touchstone in Hollywood and we sat around the table we'd always have those meetings with you and and I was sitting you were sitting at the head of the table I was sitting next to you Dick was sitting next to me and Vogel was sitting across and you guys had Beloved right and you had made Beloved and Dick loved Beloved and obviously loved Oprah and Dick and I made a thousand dollar bet that I said I, I guarantee you Waterboy outgrosses in opening weekend than Beloved and he made me a thousand dollar bet and Vogel hated the Waterboy hated everything about it right and so not only did it outgross it the opening weekend I think it outgrossed the opening weekend of total of what Beloved did and Dick wrote me a check yeah but that's just testament Dick was the head of distribution Vogel was my new boss Mm -hmm. you know and there was enough people that would have been in that green light meeting to go are you nuts this is a dumb comedy mm-hmm. who is this kid he by the way wedding singer hadn't come out you were just going off of happy gilmore mm-hmm. like that that's sad to me now because that's th- those are those are shots that are being missed you know yeah they're being missed listen when i when i uh, i did um uh, maleficent yeah. right um, some very high person at disney uh from the business area said, I don't understand why we're doing this movie because the, the, her biggest movie was like $150 million. Right. I said, it's not just about her. It's the Walt Disney Company 
presents Maleficent, which is the favorite villain in the in the whole mm-hmm. catalog, played by the only person who could play it. Right. Right. So it's an it's it's three elements. It's not just the history right. of the actor or the actress. Right. You know. So you have to you have to see the you have to be a car mechanic for twenty years. Right. Right. Who sits in his uh, little office and hears a car coming around the corner, right? Yeah. And knows, oh, I know what's wrong with that. The muffler is blah, blah, blah. That, right. That's kind of what you have to do. And the other thing that, that it, it's astounding to me, because I, when I left Disney, I have now not been at Disney for 25 years. Mm-hmm. When I left Disney, I had, I had to sell all my stock. Mm-hmm. It was at 138. Right. It just hit 138. Right. It has not hit 138 since that time. Mm-hmm. All of these billion dollar mm-hmm. movies. And I think that the re- well, I know the reason is that because what Wall Street does not understand, and you say we're a rounding error, mm-hmm. except for at Disney, it's because you made Maleficent, mm-hmm. then it goes into the parks, mm-hmm. then that drives people to the parks, mm-hmm. you know, and then you make Maleficent dolls, mm-hmm. and then Maleficent, you know, things that then spin off to the channel, mm-hmm. come back around and feed the parks again. And yes. that and that's what people don't understand is that tale yeah. of a, any star. Star Wars movie, any yeah. Marvel movie, right. first Oz for sure, Alice in Wonderland for sure. That that tale goes so far deep into the bottom line of the the Disney co- company. They're just not getting the uplift because they go, oh, it's you, you're eventually it's going to wear out. Well, they're being treated uh, like a regular media company, and uh, and the multiple on a regular media company is called. Well, I'll, I'll pretend it's five X, right? And then and the, the multiple of a company that has that kind of history, right? right? Yeah, it's probably double or triple that. But they've never been able to get that multiple. They've never been able to show Wall Street because, like, you think about it, it's like Spider Man yep. or even the DC stuff it doesn't go anywhere. No, maybe they make a Shazam mug or a, or a doll, no. but it's not feeding back into a park. Right. That's then you know driving you know just the universes are driving. Look at Star Wars Land, Cars right. Land, all these things being built. It's just so, it's so deep in terms of what how they mine that every piece of IP. Well, Bob did the right thing. He did, you can't fight City Hall, right? <laughs> right. So he spent sixteen billion dollars buying these unbelievable assets that probably I'm, I'm making this up now. It probably have generated forty billion dollars to the company easily. And so without Wall Street, uh, they're generating all this revenue for the company, right? And the difference is in that same period of time where. Disney was buying $16 billion worth of IP. Paramount was having spent $16 billion buying back its stock. Yeah. And so you can see that doing the thing with Wall Street, trying to trying to get their number, trying to inflate that stock price, because yeah. that's what Wall Street wants, yeah. just doesn't work. Well, again, our business is not a quarterly earnings business. Yeah. And that's the pro- that's the problem. It's right. like, you know, by the time I was uh, I had left in two thousand, people internally were trying to manipulate release dates based on quarterly earnings. Right. And I said, no, no, I, we, we're not doing that. You know, we we made a movie for a certain time, and you know, that's it's got to go at that time. It's not that. Uh, it, it's not that sturdy, right? You know, a, a, a business to be able to do that. Yeah, you can't. There's no. And, and the people who have tried to do that all through their careers, the business people that have come in and thought, "Look, you guys are idiots. You film people don't understand anything. I'm a businessman. I understand how to do twenty percent growth year over year, get the quarterly earnings up." Have all failed. So I would say, in my forty-five years here, I have dealt with eh, ten to fifteen billionaires, people who weren't born with a billion dollars, but people who made that money in a different business, right? Right. I have dealt with 10, 12, 13, not a single one of them, not a single one of them has made it work in the movie business. Right. Not a single one. Yeah. Again, we're not a steady growth. Right. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't yeah. work. And the the elements they bring in from another business don't really apply to the movie business. Right. And you can't, like you said, you got to go with your gut. There's no way. Every time I hear someone trying to mitigate risk, anytime right. you're in that green light committee and they're looking for comps, anytime you're in that green light committee and they're going, well, if we can protect the downside, if never f-ing works ever, never anybody. Who's and it doesn't ever, make the movie better. Anybody who's ever pre-sold foreign doesn't work. <laughs> anybody who says I can do this without development 
hasn't worked. Right. That's history. Yeah. That is history. You got to do a deep dive. You want to make a lot of money? You got to do a deep dive. You got to pay for your development, as painful as that is. You got to hold on to the international rights, as painful as that is, because when you hit, you got to take every nickel off the, uh, off, off the table. Right. Hem- Hemdale, you know, pre-sold everything but their sneakers. And finally, when they got Platoon, you know, they didn't, they didn't get the return they should have gotten because right. they'd already pre-sold everything. Everything that we talk about in terms of an analogy of the movie business always comes back to poker or some sort of gambling. Yeah. Because essentially that's what it is. Yes. You're in, and and there's no way when you're gambling, you can try. You can play the numbers. You can try to do as much as you can. But you play mm-hmm. poker, obviously. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's your love of poker that mm-hmm. got me, me and my wife. So thank you because <laughs> you loved poker. You saw Shauna on the show. That's true. I met with Shauna and now we're married. So thank uh, you for that. Well, there you go. <laughs> It's probably the best things ever happened in poker, <laughs> but it is poker. Yeah, because you're playing poker and you're pl- you're playing against the house, house or the person and saying, "How can I try to make the best of this hand and not give away when I'm going to win?" Right, but it's poker with I wouldn't call it intuitive. It's poker with historical internalized uh, uh, intuition. Intuition, right, right. That comes without, without really, th- first without thought. Right. You know, when I read something, I don't think about how much is it going to make, or who could do this, or who should be in it. I read it. I get to the end, and if on those rare occasions I went, "Wow, that was great," then I start thinking, "Yeah, oh, that was great." Okay, so that was great. If we got this kind of person or did this kind of movie and it cost this kind of thing. And then if it fit those boxes, but those boxes you don't check until you are enamored with the material. And that's the problem. People right. check those boxes w- without regard to the, uh, to the essence of the material. And now that you're doing things for Netflix, how does, it, how does your analytics and how does that internal um, monologue change? Like, how are you now making decisions of what you think would be the best for Netflix? I don't. Same. Yeah. And do you think there's any company besides Netflix right now that is doing what you just said, having those kind of um, intuitive gut reactions and greenlighting movies? I don't know. I certainly not the major studios. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, you have to be, do it a long time. It's not an accident that that you do it a long time, so it comes quote unquote naturally. Right. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing natural about it at all. You read something, you go again. If you love it. Uh, then you follow a, f- a, a formula in your head that's based on everything you knew or know from the past. Right. And uh, you hope you come up with the right formula. I remember uh, my cousin Vinny. Right? So my cousin Vinny, did I do that Disney or Fox? Fox. Fox, okay. So my cousin Vinny was a really terrific script, right? And I didn't really believe in anything else, but it was a terrific script. <laughs> And I was walking on the beach in Malibu myself and thinking, probably, I probably shouldn't do this because I really like the script, but there's nothing else about it that tells me that I should do it. No, I mean, Pesci wasn't a star. Nobody knew who the hell Marissa Tomei was. The director had not, like, had a huge hit. Yeah. So, and then I went, hey, you know what? It's going to cost $12 million. What the hell? Wow. Right? So I'm driving up to the first preview in Burbank, right? And this is when truth comes out. Oh, yeah. Driving yeah, to the first sure. Preview. You go, oh, my God. People are going to be walking out. This is going to be horrible. I can't believe this. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? It doesn't happen often. And then you go in there, and people love the movie. Right. And if you're from the East Coast, they still treat it like it's Star Wars. Yeah, sure. You know? Yeah. And again, an intuitive thing where you said, I liked it enough to take the shot. And the, price, think, po- and the price point. And the point. price point is right. right. Everything else I wasn't sure about. Right. I didn't hate. I just wasn't sure about it. Right. And so a perfect example of that is this movie that just sold to Netflix. Yes. It's a – I can just – I I – I don't know what happened, but I can feel it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's Dwayne Johnson, uh-huh. Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot. Uh-huh. It's the same team, Bo Flynn, and, and the guys who did all of those, you know, Skyscraper and all these movies. And so <laughs> it goes to Netflix. You can feel universal sigh of relief. Like, Absolutely. oh, thank God, we don't have to do it. Because the thing that Netflix has going, f- going for it in quotes is that they don't have that marketing spend. That seems to no. be what really kills yes. everything. Oh, yeah, because, you know, right now, marketing... 
generally costs more than the movie you make. Right. Right. And and do you think it's a mistake that people, the studios, are continuing to do traditional media in the same way? Like that seems to be the one place mm-hmm. that hasn't changed. It, it hasn't, hasn't evolved. I, I, I've tried to do it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And I haven't succeeded. Like when we did triple the last triple X, yep. and Vin has whatever 120 trillion <laughs> followers, followers. Yeah, right. And it didn't really uh, connect. Except in China. And uh, and I realized, again, after the fact, it's a lot different pressing a button on a computer at your home and connecting for a minute or two than it is to get your ass out of bed, get your family, drive to the theater, buy the popcorn, spend 100 bucks, right? That's a very different right. idea, which is why, by the way, the relationship between video games and movies is the lowest right. of any medium. Because sure, why would my kid want to sit home and play uh, Call of Duty 400 times for $69 then go to a movie theater and see it once for $20? Right. You know? So let's talk about That's a perfect segue to the future of our medium. So what? where do you see it headed? I mean, obviously, I, I know that you think theaters are going to be the, the domain of P.T. Barnum and everything else is going to be streaming. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of different – I mean, everybody has just gone for the subscription model. Like yes. Nobody – I thought – I think I, you and I have talked about this before. I always thought it was going to go for like like Amazon. It was mm-hmm. going to be like a pay, pay-for-play mm-hmm. kind of model. Mm-hmm. And, and very quickly, everybody just went, f*** it. I'm going to subscription because well, it's safer, right? And it's, again, it bo- buoys up your quarters. It's the, way, it's the way you sell newspapers. Right. You know, when you buy a newspaper subscription, right? It's like it takes a lot of thought to say, you know what, I'm going to cancel the LA Times. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. So it just becomes part of your monthly nut. You, right. know, you don't really think about it uh, as long as they're delivering something every once in a while that, that that's enjoyable. Right. You know, so subscription is definitely why. It's too much thought involved in pay for play. You know, it's, again, it's not. It's in. It's uh, It's not an intuitive thought. Right. Either you want to see it or you don't want to see it. You don't want to have to say it's worth three ninety nine or six ninety nine. You want to have a. That's what HBO did so spectacularly, is that they were there first, and they made quality product. And that quality wasn't just like great movies. They had quality. Boxing and quality sports, stand up, yeah, mm-hmm. and so yeah, quality. so so basically, when you were there, you knew you were going to get a first rate something, right? Right. That was a that was a very very smart model. And so the only way then uh, the pay for play model would work is if you and you just said it's not headed that way would be to kind of decentralize all the studios and you'd have to it would have to be much more like Silicon Valley in terms of startups where you had like I'm going to be a company that's going to make you know whatever it is I'm going to make comedies yep. and I'm going to sell comedies directly to consumers I'm not going I'm going to cut out the theaters I'm going to cut out the studios I'm going to cut out distribution I'm going to go like Amazon you could go on and do you know Apple or yep. Google and go oh I'd like to see an Adam you know Adam Sandler comedy and I would have that for you for 29.99 but what you're saying is it's going the other way mm-hmm. and it's just going to be four subscriptions you're going to have to buy which is kind of even weirdly to use your full circle analogy is going back to the days when it was like four things you had to buy right you had to buy HBO you had to buy bundling bundling. so they're going to bundle subscriptions that are going to be a certain amount of money and then you're going to need to feed that beast they unbundled the cable to bundle the streaming streaming. right (laughs) which is just exactly the same thing it's just digital right right and so where do you think then the movie business is headed because well, it always seems cyclical too. Because this feels like when you're saying the P.T. Barnum thing, this, this feels like the 30s again. This is not cyclical. It's not cyclical because the companies are way too big. It costs way too much money to make a movie and market a movie. You know, we always said stay out of the middle, right? Right. So the middle kept growing and growing and growing and growing, and now the middle is a chasm, you know, right. 90 miles deep. It's either going to be Blumhouse horror or or Avengers. Yeah, or uh, high-end, uh, you know, Nicole Kidman, blah, blah, blah. Right. Or, or Avengers. Right. And, and the things that exist somehow in the middle uh, are going to be anomalies, and people are going to lose their shirts as they say, see, the middle exists. Right. We can do this. Are you talking specifically for theatrical, or do you think even in streaming, the middle goes away? No, no, no. no. I'm just talking about theatrical. Oh, okay. I'm talking about theatrical. So the future of the business, really, for that chasm is streaming. Absolutely. And since every single studio 
that will be left, let's say there's four, yeah. will have a very robust need for that middle. Yes. It just won't be a theatrical model where you can make any back end. You're going right. to you're gonna have to make money on fees yeah, or yeah, however you yeah, do. Yeah, but so again, it's going to be an inventory business again, rather than a hit business. We're producers. We have to adjust to whatever it is. Right. So if you uh, the the fight will be, if you want to have it, uh, no, no, we think this is in the Barnum business. Right. But the problem with the Barnum business is if the studios have taken away first dollar gross and they've made these, um, uh, whatever they're called, you know, the, uh, where people get uh, share profits. Oh, yeah. Authority. Yeah, the pool deals. Pool deals. Mm-hmm. Well, I was a. I started a pool deal. <laughs> I started a pool deal on your movie. We had a pool deal in Night and Day. Yeah. Right, and we had a pool deal on uh, Pearl Harbor. Oh, right. Okay, right? yeah, we even going way we, back. We couldn't. We, I didn't participate in that one. <laughs> no, no. But I'm saying that's it came out yes. of we can't make this yeah. deal. You work. have so many big, huge people, yeah. and, and it's so yeah. expensive. So the, the the deal which I did with Jake was very simple. It was let's get our money back, and let's give you Vig for uh, n- not participating while we get our money back. That's where it started. Yeah. Now you get your money back, the studio. You get a 15% return on your investment. Yep. Right? And you get your regular deal. And distribution fee. And, and distribution fee. Right. Right. So where is that? Exactly. I mean, you know, that's you're chasing it. that forever. Yeah. And all of your, and again, all the marketing money goes into that as a negative, which then earns interest on that too. So you're chasing it forever. Yeah. You're chasing it forever. And maybe one day, five years from now, you might uh, get a check. So what made you then pivot? When you left Revolution to these big IP movies, what was your what was your instinct? Because you did it so quickly. Yeah. Um, I oh, I know why. Because Revolution was set up with Sony, and the idea was it was e- to make it easier on Sony. Instead of having to make twenty movies a year, they could make twelve movies a year, and we would supply eight movies a year right. or six to eight movies a year and they would be low to medium budget films mm-hmm. right and then spider-man happened mm-hmm. and when spider-man happened they realized they didn't need to make 20 movies a year <laughs> right and they didn't need our eight movies a year and so the again the body language of the f- second three years from the first three years changed because the business changed, mm-hmm. right? And I couldn't change the business model when I'm in that situation. Mm-hmm. So when I left, I went, well, okay, I get it. So uh, I'm going to go make these big movies and and uh, because that's where the business is going. Right. You know, I got caught. I got caught right in the middle mm-hmm. of, a, um, of a sea change. Mm-hmm. But you're also smart enough to see that it wasn't working and instantly pivot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Once uh, it's like Broadway. <laughs> if you get bad reviews, close the show. <laughs> <laughs> so now your company is set up. So you're doing these big movies. You obviously have Dr. Doolittle. You have Maleficent sequel, yeah. which is coming out. Good luck on that. It looks amazing. And so, and you're also doing these streaming movies. So you have then set up your company to make those big tent poles and everything else. Yeah, and there's three of us. That, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way to do it is have no gonna, overhead. Yeah, I was going to say, if you have the overhead, you're killing yourself. Right. Because then you're then you're chasing the the again you're chasing the overhead yeah and so what is your advice because you have a son who works for you yes what is your advice for young people coming into the business given everything you you said like the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours you're a guy who has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours and you've done it forever what's your advice for young people because you're also a teacher which we didn't mention you you, you're you're you always have taught uh, UCLA USC different different schools yeah what's your advice well. I hate to say this. Uh, When I said to my son a couple of years ago, if I knew the business was going to come to this, I would tell you go into another business Mm -hmm. because it's way, way, way more difficult for uh, somebody as an independent to live in that world. Mm -hmm. So I would say you have to pick an area that you love, right? Mm -hmm. So if you love making documentaries, get yourself into a documentary place and know that they're going to be streamed and and give up the idea that, uh, you know, you're going to win an Academy Award in the theaters, right? right? So you have to find the niche that you love and then see what's out there if it fits, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is if you love $50 million romantic comedies, I I, I think you're going to... Find it difficult right, to find a niche, right? Right. right. So uh, uh, that's what it's. It's more. There's less 
there's less room for experimentation and more room for very early decisions personally about where you want what you want to do. Okay. And so I always ask this question at the end, and obviously you've had such a huge career, but it, it, it's apropos of you driving to the preview of uh, My Cousin Vinny. Best day on set, if you can remember, or just best day in, you, in your job. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The best day on set was uh, I was directing. Mm-hmm. And we should also mention you've directed six movies. Yeah, I was directing, and I was down south, and I was directing uh, Coupe de Ville, and it was <laughs> night shooting. And, you know, and uh, I was working on a scene, and I realized when I walked back to the camera that I just spent 40 minutes where nobody called me, <laughs> nobody told me what was going on, nobody said that there was, a you know, a, a, an accident in the... In the uh, in a, in a trailer, right. and I realized how crazy my life is. That that's the best that I can do is have forty minutes of solitude while still doing what I love to do. Wow! And just being so immersed in it, which is why yeah. I love going to yes. set, and it's why I love yeah. it. Yeah. Being being in it every day, being in that twelve hour yeah. day yeah. is just is just everything. Yeah. So for me, it's always been it's my fault. It's always been very difficult to be completely immersive. Because I always have so many things going on at the right. same time. Right. What you need to in this day and age. Yeah. Joe, thank you, man. I love uh, you so much. I really pleasure. appreciate you doing this. It's a pleasure. Good luck. Thank I you. hope all your podcasters uh, come out and become uh, Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Joe. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Producer's Guide. We're produced by Kirsten Woodward and Steve Delamater. I want to answer all your questions about the business, so make sure to tweet me at Todd underscore Garner or use hashtag Producer's Guide on Twitter. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Download new episodes every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts.